the chronology that I think gets so screwed up and the quantity of how much you see on the internet growing up on the internet as a kid. Any unhealthy relationship that young people and just people in general seem to have with this is part of a larger story where we're mm. we're in this dopamine casino, whether it's the dating apps, which we've talked about and what that does, the randomness of that, to the yeah. pornography people are watching, to TikTok, to Instagram, to Facebook, to Twitter. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, welcome back. Thank you. Your jaw seems to be uh, in better shape. It's or, functioning. You want to it's- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> tell the audience what happened last week? This seems like yeah. a particularly difficult uh, ailment to deal with as a, as a podcast it's host. It's a little bizarro, but um, yeah, my jaw like physically locked shut. Like I couldn't open it more than like a couple of centimeters and um, not the most comfortable thing to have happen, but it's since unlocked a lot of muscle relaxants and um, electrodes shocking my jaw muscles and the whole the whole nine yards. So um, kind of a long term weird thing. Where do these electrodes come from? Do you have They're to go like, into the doctor? Yeah, to you have to go to the doctor and they put them on like your, your temples and your like kind of jaw muscles at the bottom. And then it like stimulates them and makes them like, like release i don't know the whole thing is really bizarre and huh. it's um gonna be kind of a long-term thing for me but fortunately i'm nipping it in the bud now um and i can open my mouth which is huge but a lot of soup for me i was half expecting you to i don't know if you'll get this reference which every time i say that you don't get the reference but i was expect, half expecting a, a kanye through the wire moment for you last week do you get I that reference no idea what that means no. this is amazing to me because i, I feel like <laughs> You're going to hate this characterization, but I feel like you're somewhat sympathetic to Kanye, but I feel like you missed mm. his like critical, like early amazing version of him in his first mm-hmm. few albums. But well, yeah, okay, Ricky, glad you're better. We've got some exciting topics to talk about today. We're going to talk about porn, whether it's truly a public health crisis, as some claim. Hope uh, my relatives aren't listening to this, especially my mother. Uh, Then we'll tackle the growing use of non-compete agreements. Critics say they're depressing wages and restricting freedom. Are they right? But first, let's talk about TikTok. New bipartisan legislation to ban China's popular social media app, TikTok. Massively popular. Except maybe in Washington. I've been expressing concerns about TikTok for months on end. The funny dance memes and video are simply the sheep's clothing. Underneath, it's a sophisticated surveillance app. The big concern that Chinese intelligence officials could force TikTok to share the vast amounts of data it collects. So here's the big question. Do we want the Chinese Communist Party to be able to have access to every single teenager? So I think the answer to that question is no. And I've become, through some of my reporting for the New York Post, which is forthcoming, um, more and more certain of that answer. Um, But we're having this conversation right after Biden officially banned TikTok from federal devices, which will affect 4 million employees. But the angle that really got me like more zealous on some government action here, which is not um, very like me in general, is the contrast between the version of TikTok that China is exporting to American kids, to kids around the world, and their domestic version, and the degree to which the differences between the two and the way that they're protecting their own children just reveals to me that there is, they know 
damn well what they're doing to our kids and how dangerous and damaging addictive platforms like TikTok can be. And so the the version that they have domestically is called Douyin, and it has a teenage mode that basically insulates their kids from um, a lot of the adverse effects that we're seeing here, not to mention potentially the content that American kids are are being pulled into for hours on end every single day. Well, I'm going to I'm going to quote you from now on. Zealous for government action, Ricky. <laughs> Zealous for government action. I know. Now, now, my initial reaction in hearing what you described is to be outraged and be like, hey, they're feeding us garbage that they won't give their kids. But I also think they're, they're generally on the more restrictive micromanaging side of mm-hmm. everything. And there are tons of things that they do to their population, including locking them inside for yes. years and years and years in response to COVID that at least we didn't do it as much and as extreme. And they, they're way more comfortable managing the inflow of information to their, you know, teenagers, adults, everybody. Now, there was something interesting about this, right? So they're feeding their kids stuff like science fair content and historical content on China and things like this. And I think a lot of people are reading this to be like, hey, this is better than what we're doing. But then I think about, all right, we look at our TikTok and and it's being described as dumb dance videos and things like that. And I, I, I initially think that I'm like the, the school principal in me is like, yes, I would want more academic content, et cetera. But what, one of the things that makes America awesome and better than China is that we dominate culture globally, globally. And one of the reasons why we dominate culture globally is because our kids spend a ton of time doing things that seem like it's bullshit, watching TV, mm-hmm. dancing, playing music, iterating, yeah. being creative. We do so much more of that than a lot of places, especially places like China, while also balancing that with this obsession with academics. Like nobody would claim that, especially like you get to the higher income levels and middle class kids in America, that we're not like obsessed with academics. We somehow Mm -hmm. balance obsession with academics and science fairs and things like that with this iterative cultural, you know, this iterative culture that's existed since I was a kid. It looked different. Yeah. And now it's on TikTok. Am I wrong about that? Like, I wouldn't want to ban, like, or even restrict dance videos for kids. No, certainly not. I think, so here's here's how I see this, is there's there are clearly adverse effects of TikTok and the algorithm and the addictive nature of it that goes beyond anything that we've ever really seen with social media before with the the for you algorithm the the fact that you log in and unlike YouTube where you know it'll suggest you videos and you kind of choose your own path and you decide what you want to watch and it reflects you it's feeding you content you're not even thinking about it it just goes from one video to the next and on and on and on and the level of addiction that we're seeing is unprecedented from that app i would not advocate for using like doing what China China did. I don't think that China has this like perfect ideal model. I think it's prop like it's propaganda. It's pro China, pro social uh, content that is brainwashing their youth. I, I I'm not arguing for that, but I do think it's notable that they have for anyone under 14. You have to be in teenage mode. You can only use it for 40 minutes a day between the hours of 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. So you're getting sleep. So you don't have FOMO because your friends are still up and on apps. There's mandatory delays when you're scrolling. Every once in a while, it'll be like take a breather. Here's five seconds. So you're not like this endless zombie going through. So I think those sort of regulations, the fact that they're aware of the fact that the average international user of TikTok uses it 91 minutes a day, which is a huge amount of time that there's 
um, measurable from China, China's own studies. There are measurable changes to the brain that are happening called, that has been dubbed TikTok brain. And you can see the areas that are associated with addiction lighting up in people's brains when they're watching this app. And so I think, you know, I I am very concerned about the the fact that you just plug into this foreign app that is potentially, I mean, almost definitely under the CCP's guidance in some way, shape or form. You can't have a major company in China and not defer to them if they request. And the fact that we're just logging in and we're just getting the, this is what's chosen for you. Yeah, there's a lot of dumb stuff. I don't really care. There was dumb stuff on TikTok. There's dumb stuff on Instagram. The fact that this is a foreign owned company from a, a country that I think has a vested interest in pulling us down is what is concerning to me. And it's a it's a concern that's shared by people in our intelligence community, including Nicholas Chalin, who's the ex-chief software officer for the Air Force and the Space Force, um, who said this. Without a doubt, when you look at the volume and, and the consumption of TikTok today in the United States being the largest uh, uh, social media company, effectively in terms of consumption, uh, both in uh, in Europe, but also here in the United States, that's uh, uh, pretty clear that the you know the application itself will be able to sway elections uh, just by uh, pushing the the right content uh, to the right audience. I agree with people who are don't want authoritarian regimes, whether it's China or anybody else, controlling key cultural level levers of the United States, especially those that control the flow of information. So, I generally support where Trump was heading towards. I'm not sure he had the legal authority, but he was trying to mm -hmm. force TikTok to sell off its American subsidiary or like its American yeah. version. And it's kind of heading in that direction, but it hasn't fully gotten there. Biden approved on December 29th, limiting TikTok and banning it from uh, federal devices. I approve of that. And part of that mm -hmm. is because you have multiple things that can go on, right? They can, we don't, know if they can get unauthorized access to our phones and data they have they're yeah. sitting on a ton of data about the american population and what we like and don't like that could be helpful for influence operations and obviously they could play with the algorithm to promote their own messages i agree with all yeah. of that but i don't think anything that we do to divorce this technology from the chinese mainland is going to solve the addictiveness of it I think this yeah, has got to come certainly. from parenting and culture more than anything else. I completely agree. I don't think the solution is banning like I th all social media platforms come with these same issues and kids staying up and kids getting addicted. I think the issue of it being foreign owned and China having a direct line of contact with American kids potentially for an average 90 minutes a day is just staggering to me. And when you look at the percentages of Gen Z and young people, how they even access the internet, like I, this is unfathomable to me, but 40% of my generation um, use Instagram or TikTok as their kind of like search engine to the rest of the internet. Like if they want to find something out, they'll look it up on TikTok. And so this is, I mean, unprecedented access to the way that people take in information that's from a state that is clearly an enemy state. And I think the the long-term implication of this is they asked um, in a survey, Chinese youth and American youth, they gave them like five different potential jobs and said, what would be your favorite? And by far, the number one thing in China, kids said they wanted to be an astronaut. By far in America, it was being an internet celebrity. And so I think <laughs> like this is just not a good long-term uh, prognosis. And so 
yeah, I just, it's it's really concerning to me. And this is one of the places where, you know, I don't think we should be regulating social media. I do think it's about parenting, but we should be regulating a an enemy state having access to our children's eyes and ears and hearts and minds for a considerable portion of their day every single day, 100%. Part of me, though, I look at this, I agree with a lot of people like Scott Galloway who say, you know, we may want to ban this. Are we comfortable? Are we down with an organization that wants to undermine America controlling the media our children see? It should be banned full stop. But then there's another part of me that says, well, the consistency here matters to me. So I don't want any powerful cultural institution or you know, journalistic institution or social media platform in the United States owned by authoritarian regimes that don't share our values. And I would apply this to the NBA, which we've talked about has been under in tremendous influence from China and basically their players are self-censoring themselves and attacking each other for even supporting Hong Kong, for example, which happened with mm-hmm. LeBron and Daryl Morey. Apple, which has you know refused to take TikTok off of its app store. I could only imagine why. We talked about Apple the other day and their supply chain. I'm, I'm sure it has something to do with that. There are Not to mention, of- they gave them on the app store the Editor's Choice Award when you look at right. TikTok on Amazing. the app store. It's just, oh my God. Hollywood Studios, we've talked about, Wall Street Journal's reported a lot on this, how you, you try to find a villain from from the Chinese government in a... In a major studio film anytime recently. Elon Musk, whose supply chain is over there, he made some questionable decisions to limit certain platforms, but not TikTok. On, t- on TikTok, financiers, all these hedge funds, et cetera, private equity groups that are buying up assets in the United States are also close with China, many of them. But it's not just China. It's, you know, you look at, you know, Gulf state you know, authoritarian mm-hmm. regimes, for instance, you know, Twitter has considerable investments from some shady regimes. So it's like, th- I would want to be consistent and apply the standard across the board, not just to TikTok. I, j- mm-hmm. I don't think we should be, we should allow major cultural and economic institutions in the United States to be owned by companies that are under the thumb of authoritarian regimes. And it's not just influence, it's direct control, as you alluded to. Jack Ma, the mm-hmm. CEO of Alibaba, was disappeared for a while because he just criticized his own country. And I, it wasn't even like a barbed criticism. So these are these are companies yeah. that are under direct control of their regimes. They're extensions of the state. They have no business controlling culture in the United States. I just don't know how you legislate that and just say we, we are not going to do any business with, with China or let China or like with the NBA, they're just a large consumer of something that we export. And I don't know that like like what the solution to that is. I, I, as much as I, I do think on federal, um, on federal devices, a hundred percent, this should not be on them. Like the, the amount of data that they are pulling is really concerning. China was pulling or TikTok, Douyin, their parent company was pulling IP addresses from journalists who were reporting critically on TikTok. But I think like, Apple really should be a line of control here. The FCC commissioner asked them to remove the app. They did remove Parler. So there is a threshold that they've encountered in the past and said this is not an appropriate app for people to use. I think parents are extremely important with this. I agree with you. I think getting your kid off this app is something that you as a parent have the authority to do and probably should. And I also think that adults should be leading by example a little bit more and actually deleting the app 
And final thing, which I know will get me flack because I've I've taken an L on my pro Elon stuff, but he floated bringing back Vine, which, you know, I don't know, maybe it's not Vine, but an American domestic competitor that's doing the same thing or doing something similar, I think would be um, a nice free market solution that doesn't involve the government. I would be for that if he wasn't and I hesitate to get to an Elon debate right now, but if he wasn't <laughs> we himself don't have to. <laughs> captive to the Chinese regime, if he was, if yeah, he was showing any sense of independence from the Chinese, I would be a little bit more supportive of that. Now, there is something we could look to, right, which is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, which is a government entity that, that looks at national security implications of foreign mm-hmm. direct investment in the United States. And I think this is the kind of thing we should strengthen their authority. I think you could find bipartisan support for that. There, there are senators on both sides of the aisle who are very skeptical of not just China, but other regimes influencing the United States. And I, I would want to give them more discretion because this is an area where I actually think politicians, their their political motivations and the substance could line up here. And we could. I, I don't think it's a bad thing if we overdo it a little bit in limiting authoritarian regimes' investments in the United States. If we went too far in one direction there, I would actually be okay with it. So in Louisiana, we just saw a really major bill passed that could have huge implications on access to the internet and access to porn specifically. It's House Bill 142, which requires a government-issued ID showing that you're above the age of 18 to access porn on any website that's content is more than exactly a third pornographic. I'm not exactly sure how they determine that. Um, But this is coming after 17 states have moved in a certain degree to at least declare porn a public health crisis, which is a huge allegation. But there are, you know, similar laws in the works in California. In Utah, there's a warning if you go on any pornographic website. Um, The UK has renewed previously failed efforts to um, create a, a similar kind of firewall. And France says there's no solution to this sort of situation. And so we're kind of, I think, as as a whole global society grappling with what porn looks like, especially for young people growing up with access to it. But the solutions are very all over the place. And Louisiana's um, solution here certainly seems to rise to a level that we haven't really seen before in America. Yeah, and the scale of this is pretty tremendous. Porn sites receive Mm -hmm. more visits than Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Netflix, Pinterest, and Zoom combined. So when we think about the last story, this is way beyond the scope even of TikTok's impact on America. Mm -hmm. And I think because of the taboo associated with porn, there isn't a robust debate. There aren't many segments on, on news programs talking about this, I think, because people are a little bit queasy talking about it. Pornhub uh, estimates that, and this was in 2019, 12,500 gigabytes of porn were uploaded to the site every minute, enough to fill the memories of every smartphone in the world. So this mm-hmm. is huge. So Louisiana, you know, they, they obviously uh, have their own particular sense of alarm over this. What's weird, though, about this law is that Louisiana and the companies involved here are quick to say, hey, we're not collecting data, we're not going too far. And it almost, yeah. they're almost admitting that this is kind of toothless. So in December, the spokesperson for uh, Louisiana wallet maker Envoke asserted that companies like Pornhub wouldn't retain inf- any information on users. And this is what they said, quote, it doesn't identify your date of birth. It doesn't identify who you are, where you live, the part of the state you're in, or any information from your device 
or from your actual ID. It just returns that age to say, yes, this person is old enough to be allowed to go in. End of quote. Well, the obvious follow-up question is, well, then couldn't you just grab any ID from any adult? Like we've all, you know, seen fake IDs or Absolutely. borrowed IDs from parents. And you just put it on the system and get in. I'm not sure this is really going to stop anybody. Yeah, it's the same threshold of of having something like like a drinking age and 21 is in my view, completely unreasonable, and people will circumvent that. Even if it were 18, which I think is a reasonable drinking age, people will circumvent that. That's just inevitable. Um, I've, I do have a lot of issues with this law specifically, um, especially that there would almost definitely need to be a third party that you go through. And something that's as intimate as the porn that you're watching, theoretically, if there was a data breach, that could be like I can't even imagine the implications for blackmail and personal data and privacy. Um, there's concerns about also like identity theft and taking a, a parent's ID or something like teenagers. I could foresee doing exactly that. Also, VPNs would circumvent it, I imagine. Um, and 17 is the age of consent in the state. So you can have sex, but you can't watch people have sex. And I like I am very sympathetic to the underpinnings of this bill. I do believe that there is a public health crisis. I do believe we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg with a generation who was raised like steeped in access to porn, whether or not you even wanted to see it. Like I remember growing up and being on the internet and seeing like pornographic images and gifs and videos without knowing what I was even looking at. And I wasn't searching that out. That was something that I was inundated with, even though my parents did a great job of like making sure that I was being responsible on the internet. Like I was probably like eight or nine and like, what the hell is that? And that's not, I mean, I wasn't purposefully consuming it, but I think there's also like a huge implication for kids that at really young ages do start doing so and what that means to kind of um, circumvent normal sexual development or normal exposure in such such a severe way and with so much such a large quantity, I suppose. Well, I think like in men, like many things in society these days, the trend has always been has been there for a long time. So when when we were kids, we used to mm -hmm. steal our parents VHS tapes and things like that. And there also yeah. was this weird quirk of cable boxes which were were boxes at the time and mm -hmm. they there would be like these you know x these x-rated uh, channels that were like blocked but mm -hmm. like there was all sorts of shenanigans about unblocking it or some parents had access to Skinamax or this or that and people would go over each other's houses but it was like nowhere near as accessible or at the scale yeah. it is now i think what your generation is dealing with you know, and this is true of anything. The technology is better. The accessibility is better. That's true of social media. It's true of video games. It's true of so many things. So the the scale is what's changed, not the not the the nature of the issue. Because so many people in my generation also learned about sex through pornography. Yeah. It was just really weird, staged '80s porn. Whereas now, yeah. it's, there's so much more going on on the internet. The scale and the content, I think, has changed because. There's a statistic that that shows that like one in eight, if you just log into Pornhub or a, a porn provider, one of one in eight titles will have some degree of violence in them. And I think, you know, there there's always been niche porn and fetishes and all. I mean, that's just humanity, but that's all accessible to very young people. And there's this term that I'm like, I hope my parents 
stop listening to this one if you're still here. Your parents Mom are absolutely listening. They're pretty but loyal I know, listeners. 100% they're so going careful. to. But there's this term that like, ew, I, it like makes my skin crawl, but it's called FAP entropy that Mary Harrington coined, which is like the idea that once you start plugging into porn, especially for young boys, when you can come home and watch it every single day after school, which a friend of mine who both flipped to his interview did for as he was growing up, the the thing that you need, the threshold you need, the novelty that you need to to like be aroused becomes greater and greater and greater and more oftentimes violent or oftentimes graphic and at a really rapid pace when you look at the degree of addiction that young boys have. And so I spoke to a friend of mine named Chris, who's a college student who's my age. And he had this experience of growing up and having access to porn and ending up going down rabbit holes because he was accessing it so frequently that by the time he was 17 and he was actually engaging in intimate relationships, like his, he had, he's in his view, his brain had fundamentally rewired to be aroused by extreme content and it's changed the way that he interacts with women in his real life if you really want to scare them tell them if you want to have a a girlfriend or a boyfriend one day uh you know uh porn will ruin that experience for you down the road um because that's that's the biggest thing everyone trades when they particularly men decide to watch porn is is they they trade the true experience of of love and monogamy uh, and sexual enjoyment from another human being. And oftentimes they trade it unknowingly. I think that's what's so heartbreaking about it is I feel like the porn industry took my my ability to love earnestly. And and that's uh, the most despairing feeling I've ever felt. So I found this to be a really powerful interview. And just I, I think my generation was a lot of, or my sub generation was a lot of test cases for like, what does social media look like when we don't know the effects and you're 11 and you can plug in? Or what does porn look like when parents don't even realize the degree to which it's just all over the internet and their kids are inevitably going to come past it? And I think we were that kind of test case sub generation. And it's really unfortunate to hear from him how much it's fundamentally changed his brain, changed his sexuality, changed his experience with women and romance and intimacy. And so I I think it's important to put some human layer to this conversation. Yeah. What he's saying dovetails with something Billie Eilish said not too long ago where where she talked about, you know, her own experience coming up watching porn and the violence on, on a lot of these platforms. As a woman, I think porn is a disgrace. And I used to watch a lot of porn to be honest i started watching porn when i was like 11. i thought that's how you learned how to have sex i was watching um abusive porn to be honest you know when i was like 14 and Mm. i you know thought i was one of the guys and would talk about it and think it was really cool for 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 not having a problem with it and not seeing why it was bad and i think it really destroyed my brain and um i feel incredibly devastated that I was exposed to so much porn. I think that I had like sleep paralysis and these like almost like night terror slash just nightmares because of it. I think that's how they started because I would just watch abusive BDSM. And so I would couple her impression with your friend's impression and just say that there's so much I agree with, but I think that we treat the industry, like he talks about the industry as a monolith, whereas porn Mm -hmm. is changing like all other media. Mm -hmm. And 
what it looks like today is going to be fundamentally different than it looks like 10 years from now. And actually what he's describing is not the full story of what the porn industry is today. There's this great podcast called Sex with Emily um, by this uh, therapist in, in uh, LA who has people on the, from the porn industry on, but other experts on you know sexuality and love life and relationships and things like that. And she, she's been tracking the trends and there's something really interesting going on, which is number one, you're seeing a lot more content from actual couples. Mm-hmm on these porn sites uh, and so it's like consensual relationships of people picking each other there are also growing sites like the site called Belesa which is like porn industry people picking each other and being very explicit about what they do and don't want to do um, there's also sites like OnlyFans where people in the industry are starting to control their own content so that it's less coercive because the industry has traditionally been very coercive and I think over time you're going to see like what we see in all types of media, like in our, you know, we see dig- disaggregation in political media. There's disaggregation happening in pornography too, where people mm-hmm. are going to, the, the kinds of content are going to be different. And I would also say that I, I also wonder how much violence itself in the porn industry is a reflection of the porn industry or just our propensity as a society to like be into weird and violent things like we've been you know ever since i was a kid we've been we've been hearing from politicians about how violent video games are or how violent tv shows are and i wonder you know if you looked at video games and tv shows what percentage of those would be violent i would say probably a a very high percentage of those and just like anything else this dovetails with my feeling about tiktok which is you know, the answer is, and I know that your friend isn't, I don't know if he's necessarily asking for government intervention or not, but I think the answer often in these cases is is just teaching kids, as your friend alludes to, teaching kids about what these tools are and, yeah. you know, helping them be responsible with them. Yeah, I just think there's something, like, I, I completely agree with you that the industry is kind of an inevitable aspect of being human and, like, in the same sense that I don't, think we should criminalize prostitution because that's just something that is a part of human society and you know some like early iterations of pornographic material exist as long as there have been culture and I don't I don't think we're ever going to get rid of it I don't think getting rid of like violent pornographic content is something that we would ever we should or could ever do as a society but I think the question about like the developmental impacts are just really, really important, both for boys and girls. And I think what Billie Eilish gets at is like the the way that some girls grow up understanding what sex even looks like based on the fact that they've seen these images. And it's the chronology that I think gets so screwed up and the quantity of seeing how much you see on the internet growing up on on the internet as a kid before you've even like been intimate with someone or even potentially kiss someone and I think that like another thing that Chris mentioned in our interview was that when he was younger and before he started watching porn like he would see a girl's bra strap and that would drive him crazy for a whole day and then a year later he's consuming hardcore porn like just that chronology is super screwed up and there's I think for girls there's one measurable thing that I think is important to note here, which is that meta-analyses have found that um, porn use has significantly increased sexual aggression. And while 21% of women in the general population say that they've been choked during sex, that is 58% for college students. So there's a measurable change in the types of sexual activity that even young women are having and what they expect sex even looks like because of how 
violence heavy pornographic material can be. Um, but I think with boys, the most this is the most kind of salient statistic, in my opinion, is about erectile dysfunction among young men, uh, men under 35 who are in a prime period of their life. Um, 23% of them say that they have erectile dysfunction when having sex with, or sexual dysfunction of some sort while having sex with a real partner. And of that subset, 50% of them don't have the same experience when they're watching porn. So there, I think there's something to growing up and this is how your brain is wired to be aroused. And then you have a real partner. That's not what sex looks like. Or that person doesn't consent to that image of what sex looks like. And your body is physically not even responding to that. Like that is that's a staggering percentage to me. 23% of men under 35. And I think that it will only go up as the subgeneration that grew up with internet porn in their pockets 24-7 comes of age. Yeah, and people might be listening to this and saying, well, what's the scientific mechanism behind all this? Like, what what's driving the erectile dysfunction? What's driving uh, some of the behaviors that people are seeing? Because obviously we know that if there's exposure to porn, well, what is it doing to our minds and bodies? Uh, Stanford medical professor uh, Andrew Huberman, podcast extraordinaire, has been talking about this recently. Let's cut to a clip of him. We have to take a step back and now knowing what we know about testosterone and dopamine and all these things and, and ask, you know, what it, what is pornography doing to the brain? Well, first of all, it's triggering the release of dopamine and in the short term testosterone by the observation of sex, not actually engaging in human contact. And so, you know, he's talking about the the dopamine spikes, right? And how mm -hmm. there's almost a dulling effect. Interesting that later in this interview, he compares porn addiction to other drugs and addiction to cell phones. And I think that's where this gets interesting, which is I situate porn as a particularly, it obviously has unique characteristics, but I think any unhealthy relationship that young people and just people in general seem to have with this is part of a larger story where we're, mm -hmm. we're in this dopamine casino, whether it's the dating apps, which we've talked about and what that does, the randomness of that, to the yeah. pornography people are watching, to TikTok, to Instagram, to Facebook, to Twitter, to Netflix, to YouTube. And I think if I were if, if I were advising schools and parents right now, I think we need way more content that's almost agnostic of the tools and mediums. And eventually you get there on the tools and mediums, right? But I think we need to take a step back and say, how do you regulate your own attention span and your own brain and the dopamine cycles yeah. within your body. And then you start to apply it to all these different tools and say, here's how you have a healthy relationship to content and a healthy mm -hmm. relationship to different tools that are out there that are being designed to hijack your attention span and your emotional regulation. A hundred percent. And I think, um, I think education is a huge aspect here. Um, that's one of the major takeaways that Chris had was just like talking to your kids. And I mean, I, completely admit despite being exactly his age this is something i was completely ignorant to of what the male experience is i think it's a much more physiological experience than the than young women have had um with porn addiction in my sub generation like i didn't even really understand the extent of it until i dug into this and he actually personally opened my eyes by being so vulnerable, but that's such an awkward conversation that almost nobody wants to have. And I appreciate and applaud him having that. I think that 
I think education is a huge aspect. There are several states that require um, sexual education to talk about porn use and and what that looks like. I think that needs to change and probably be updated pretty fundamentally based on just how much that industry has changed and the quantity of its access among young people has changed. But do you recently. trust the government to handle that though, Ricky? Because you know we talk about well, things like I don't you know, what's going it, on in Florida. There are gay kids in that class, for example. Are, are you going? Is Ron DeSantis going to allow a teacher to get up and talk about gay porn in the classroom? If I were that teacher, I'd be very. I think a sexual education that. conversation. I mean, I'm not anti-sex ed in any way, shape, or form. No, I'm not There's saying you are. A, yeah, yeah, I'm just no, saying, but I, don't I think trust these I think a conversation. I think a conversation in, well, I think that's a kind of more local school board situation, but I do think in sex ed classes, I would be an advocate of whether it's public or private or whatever in general. I think having a conversation and saying like porn addiction is a real thing and a real problem. And it also measurably re- rewires young people's brains. I don't think that's a conversation that we really knew or had in the same way that all, all of this like social media and dating apps and like I think the reason that right now we're starting to talk about this in the past couple of years is because we have the first couple like young adults who are old enough to talk about their experiences in a retroactive way and to say that developing with this fundamentally messed them up. And I think the pendulum's going to swing to a degree. I think that already parents are much more aware. My mom is a wonderful, thoughtful, mindful parent and some of the, like the, she she always gets upset when I say that I've had an iPhone since I was 11. I don't think my mom did anything wrong. I don't think we understood that or that I had an Instagram account when I was 12. We had no idea what that was going to look like. I was posting yeah. pictures of my dogs. And I think that having these conversations, having people like Chris who are so open and saying that developing with these things is even more important than just having access to them as adults. Like whatever, I don't care. Do whatever, watch whatever when you're 18. But I think that developmental question is a really important one to be having right now. News just broke that the FTC is proposing a pretty sweeping ban um, after a three to one vote in favor of it to ban non-compete agreements and employment agreements, um, which would require employers not only to cancel their existing ones to agree to not do another non-compete, but also to notify their employees that they're basically free to go as they will. So this would affect as many as one in five workers in the United States um, pretty fundamentally in terms of their ability to start a competing business, to work with a competitor, the time and geography in which they do so, and basically their job mobility fundamentally would change and it would take quite a lot of power away from employers. And so this is um, right now just a proposal. They're still taking comments, but if it were to go through, this is a pretty sweeping move from the FTC. Yeah, and just for people who might not know what these are, essentially it just says that you... There are many versions of these, but the the basic version of it is that it bans employees for sometimes a period of time from seeking employment with a competing firm or within the same industry. Mm-hmm. And you know, it usually lasts a few years. And there are there are some defensible purposes of these, like preventing an employee from leaving company and poaching clients or starting their own business and taking key intellectual property from you. Like, let's say like you Definitely. have some like critical manufacturing process or something, or you're about to launch a mar- product and you're going to market it a certain way. So you want to, you want to prevent the employee from 
from leaving and taking that information with you. There's also a, a mm -hmm. defense of these is also that you invest time in training in people and this incentivize if, you, if a company knows that they've got you for a period of time, they would, you know, they're invest more in time and training and they don't want to lose people. You know, another defense of this is that yeah. contracts are contracts and people should be free to contract away time if they want. So those are, those are some of the pros of this. The cons are that you lock employees often into lower wages. So, you know, oftentimes if you have that power over an employee, you know, we talked to some people, you know, Connor Doherty, the New York Times, who described uh, in some pieces that he wrote a few years ago and then an interview with us, he was describing how there are a lot of cases where these employees are like, hey, I can get more salary down the street in a competing company, but they're not allowed to do so. And in certain cases, they're they're mm -hmm. they're locked into a company that's cutting their wages and they can't go to another company that's going to increase their yeah. wages. You know, I did this big story where I had this one guy whose whole life was like destroyed over this one non-compete. And it was crazy because he worked for a company, they cut his pay. Straight up cut it. It wasn't like that, you know, it was like he made 80 grand and then he made like 70 grand. And then the competing place was like, hey, we'll offer you your old salary back. And they're like, no, you can't take it. So like in a smaller town where he was, like they're basically like, you have no choice but to work for us for exactly the price we say you should work. It also restricts people's freedom and makes markets less competitive. It restricts uh, startup formation and I think by and large, this is in line with other forms of contracts that, you know, whether mm -hmm. they're non-disparagement agreements, non-disclosure agreements, arbitration clauses that are increasing in use across the country and restricting what workers can do when they leave companies. This is definitely a case-to-case -case basis in my mind. Like if you have a high-level executive, which I think is what most people think of when they think of non-compete agreements, like you don't want a CEO of one major company to move to their like competitor and just kind of shift everything that they were doing or take with them um, confidential consumer data or secrets or intellectual property of any sort. Like I think that there is a time and a place for a non-compete. I do think it's an employer's right to decide if that's the time and the place. And like, it's not, it, it is in one of the things that I didn't like about the way that the FTC kind of framed this is that they're like employees are ignorant and they just don't know and they don't realize that it's in there. Like, I do think that we should demand of people that they read their contracts and understand what's going on. They do like employees are people they do sign. There are some benefits to being in a non-compete, like a company might be more incentivized to invest in you because they think the, of you as a longer term asset rather than a shorter term asset. Can I ask you something about that though, before we move off yeah. of that point, do you read the terms of service every time Apple makes you like, no, absolutely through? not. But if I'm signing an employee agreement, like I think that's, I think that we can demand that level of scrutiny yeah. of people who are engaging in a job. I think that I, I, but I do think that there are unreasonable e examples of this. Certainly people who are low wage, who are hourly, who have are hourly employees who have no like data or secrets or anything that they're really accessing in their day-to-day -day life. I think that that's an unreasonable restriction. I think workers who are fired or laid off, um, it's really unfair to me yeah. to say, oh, here, you don't have a job now. We're not going to give you a job anymore. And you also can't get a similar job somewhere else that with somebody who still wants to hire you. That feels 
wrong to me. I do think the most important thing here is that most states already require a very, like they have very vague legal language around this that says that they need to be reasonable, which is very much open Mm -hmm. to interpretation. And I think that that allows courts to make this decision rather than the FTC to say this is a federal ban and there's no way, shape or form that a non-compete could possibly make sense. Well, yeah. And and as Connor described, you know, you got people like employees at Jimmy John's or a guy who yeah. Connor talked to who described himself as, quote, just shoveling dirt as his job. So he wasn't even operating heavy machinery. He was prevented from leaving his company. So you've got a growing use of these for blue collar workers. And mm-hmm. by some estimations, you have it's just as prevalent with people without college degrees as it is with people with doctorates, for example. So it's starting to grow you know, as you go down the scale. And there are only a few states that ban these, California, Oklahoma, North Dakota, and they all passed these laws before the year 1900. And these are kind of accidental bans. They weren't really thoughtful. And it's, we're kind of, we're, we're left with, you know, the policy today. And if you support it, it's mm-hmm. great. But it, it's not like we've seen a, a revolution in, you know, meaningful public policy in this area recently until this announcement. And Cherry Khan she cites as her authority for this Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act, which allows an agency to police, quote, unfair methods of competition, end quote. So she's taking this language and, you know, longtime listeners of this podcast will know. You're probably going to guess where I'm going with this next. The Supreme Court is going to be interested in this. She definitely has the mm-hmm. votes on the Federal Trade Commission yeah. to do this. The Supreme Court, we've, you know, if you're a longtime listener, you're now a legal expert and you know about the major questions doctrine because we talked about West Virginia versus EPA and other cases where the Supreme Court has said whenever Congress, you know, know, gives broad latitude to cabinets, you know, with very general language, this particular Supreme Court is very skeptical of when agencies take like fairly vague language or broad language and make significant economic changes based on yeah. that language. And so although I am sympathetic to Khan, I think she's going to have an uphill battle with the Supreme Court. Yeah, and already the Chamber of Commerce is um, weighing a lawsuit based on statutory authority. Um, and the FTC already at the same time announced that they were settling with individual companies that had um like overzealous non-compete agreements. I think, I just think it's a much more nuanced case to case situation. I do think though, the fact that California is among the few states that have any restrictions and it is the home of Silicon Valley and a ton of innovation and startups and competitive companies. And despite that fact, even though they do have a a large curb on their non-competes, that innovation still thrived and arguably um, at a faster degree than anywhere else that or any industry that we've seen in this country, I think is a good case in favor of scaling back non-competes. But I do think it's like, I think the threshold of reasonability, even though I don't love the idea of having a very vague law on the books for something as important as whether or not you can get a job elsewhere, um, like having that reasonable threshold to me seems better than saying that there's no way, shape, or form, or situation, or or job, or level of authority in which you, your company or you as an employer do not have the right to say that you can't 
go right away and just start working at the competitor's company with what you know. Like, I, I just think it's much more nuanced. Well, you know, Elizabeth Wilkins, a friend of mine who's director of policy planning at the FTC, she was on PBS NewsHour recently talking about this. And she talks about an interesting phenomenon related to what you said. There are a couple states that fully ban non-competes already, but not all of them do. And one of the really interesting and frankly sort of disturbing pieces of evidence that we have is that in states that ban non-competes, you actually see them in just as many contracts as states that don't. That means workers don't know what their rights are, and workers may be chilled from trying to find another job, getting a better paying job, even when those clauses are unenforceable. So a clear federal rule would go a long way to making sure that people can actually switch jobs, find better pay, and better working conditions. States that ban non-competes, you actually see them as in as just as many contracts as states that don't. And that means that mm-hmm. workers don't know what their rights are. And Connor Doherty, when we spoke to him, also mentioned that often what happens is these companies are so litigious, they're so much more powerful, they have deeper pockets than their employees. So when the employees even have the law on their mm-hmm. side, they're being suited to oblivion. And he, he chronicles one guy who you know, lost so much of his money, his life savings, paying for expensive lawyers, winds up winning his case, Mm -hmm. but loses so much money in the process. So when I start to see stuff like this, I start to think to myself, well, this does seem like the government might might want to get involved because even if the law is on your right side, on the side of you, and uh, whether it's your state bans it or the non-compete doesn't apply to you, and your life is still getting ruined when you're trying to exercise your rights, then I think mm-hmm. the government should do something there because that seems untenable. Yeah, I agree. It's worth mentioning, Ricky, that a lot of the aims that companies are trying to get at through non-compete agreements could be solved through other means. So for example, valuable trade secrets. You could just have a non-disclosure agreement uh, for employees mm-hmm. and enforce that. You talk about investment and time and training. You know, For that, there could be some kind of Uh, agreement that there's certain money that people spend on training and investment that tolls a certain way. You could sign a separate contract saying, hey, I'm going to send you to the Singularity University or Harvard Extension School. And if you leave within a couple of years, you have to pay that back almost like it's a bonus. So I don't know. I think there are certain things people can do here. But I asked you about the Apple terms of service because I think there's this growing trend. Stephen Brill wrote about this in a book called Tailspin growing trend, he talked about in the the case of arbitration agreements. When you sign those terms of service in these agreements, if you're at Best Buy or at Apple, you get this app or whatever, Mm -hmm. we're often signing away our ability to sue those companies if something happened. You know, like if I'm at my Tesla Mm -hmm. for, you know, know, I'm at the Tesla storeroom or something and I sign off to get my Tesla, how many people are actually reading that contract, right? So yes, the answer is often read your contracts. I think employment contracts in particular, very high stakes documents, people should read those things. But even though I'm I'm fairly uh, on the personal responsibility side of most things, as evidenced by the past two segments, I do think like this sense of like reasonableness. These contracts are getting longer and longer and longer. They're getting more complicated. They're very expensive to read. Yeah. Sometimes people don't know what they're yeah. they're reading. They're not lawyers. They don't have the kind of money to review mm-hmm. these kinds of things. So I think they're at the very least some kind of plain language. Uh, requirement of these contracts where you bold and put in in a summary and have some kind of videotaped explanation where the company lawyer explains, hey, just so you know, this locks you in for this amount of time and you don't have to agree to, you know, like something where beyond, almost like reading of your rights that would go on when people sign these contracts. Yeah, I'm sympathetic to that. And I think, like, I mean, I've long felt that we live in 
far too much of a litigious society. And the idea that in states where workers do have that rights, the expectation would be placed on like an hourly worker to sue their employer because there's a non-compete in there and their contract is absolutely ridiculous to me. I think I'm, I don't like the federal aspect of this. I think that there are different solutions and probably like I mean, you've you just rattled through a bunch of different possibilities, and I think that there are different regulations that could come out of all of those. I would rather see that happen on a state level, depending on the kind of industries or um, kind of just let a battle of the ideas play out state to state a little bit more. But I do think this is renewing a, a conversation that should be had, um, certainly Certainly in the case of layoffs, I think that's mm-hmm. that's the place for me where this is the least excusable. But my final question to you is, do you see this as a place for federal movement or do you think that this should be on the more local level? I'm sympathetic to banning them just because I think I'm, I'm generally more of a like freedom to move. I think so many great companies and so many, it's part of the reason why Silicon Valley is what it is, right? Like I think so many great innovations come from people having the power to leave. And I think these things are being abused. Mm-hmm. And I think if I, when I put myself in the shoes of the average person, I always think of somebody like my mom. My mom is the kind of person who's not going to hire a lawyer to review her contract. She's not going to understand what's in her contract. She signed up subprime mortgage refinance in the middle of like one of the you know many recessions we've had in my lifetime. She's the kind of person who will get duped by the wrong person. And actually, interestingly, her profession, medical profession, these things are very common. And so I think about people like her, and I'm like, I want to make the life as easy as possible for her. And and one of the reasons why I think federal intervention might be necessary is because of remote work, right? Like state to state, you're starting to see look way more complexity of who is a worker and what state mm-hmm. or not. And you also see, yeah. you know, what's being described in the research, which is that even in states that have banned this, workers still don't know that these are not you know, uh, they, they don't have to abide by these companies are still trying to enforce them. So I think if there were a federal ban, maybe there'd be more awareness. Maybe we'd simplify things. You could wind up in federal courts. So I don't know. Mm. I'm, I'm sympathetic to the national ban. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the town. Hey, Ricky and Robbie. Uh, good morning here. Uh, my name is Kevin. I consider myself a progressive living in Florida. Just wanted to offer some comments on the show, on the regressive show with uh, Batia Unger. You know, there were instances where she was kind of comparing at least the daytime models of political debate on networks like CNN and Fox News specifically. She had claimed that, you know, Fox News had a superior model with having roundtable debates with largely conservative people. And then, you know, they'll have one Democrat or progressive thinking person and they fight hard. And she says, see, that's an example of them at least introducing a a different viewpoint to people. And that is a model that is I kind of find to be arguing in bad faith. Just having one person surrounded by sharks in in a pool I don't think is very effective in kind of conveying that, hey, here's a broader set of views that people should kind of learn from. I don't think that Fox News, at least with their daytime coverage, is a paradigm in that. Well, I appreciate this, listener. I largely agree. I think, you know, the, I think of Hannity and Combs, where Alan Combs was a rather 
convenient liberal. <laughs> he was terrible, uh, I think, by design and, and did not acquit himself really well. There's obviously tons of books like The Loudest Voice in the Room written about what goes on at Fox News. Ricky, I know you have a relationship with them, so I won't necessarily force you to comment on this. But I, I generally agree. I don't, I don't buy their good faith. It's obviously a right-wing television cable network, and I think even Batia would agree with that. I think she did agree to that at some point in the interview. So I, I think even she would agree with most of what you're saying. I've, I very much agree with Batia's stance that I think they are a better model compared to CNN and MSNBC of having... If you watch the... Because I have a similar like viewpoint to her of watching consuming both sides of media uh, like all day long as much as I possibly can of getting having it on in the background and I think that the in terms of what I've seen just if off the top of my head I had to make like a statistical guess I think there's a lot more in the daytime hours less than prime time in the daytime hours there are a lot more panels with diverse viewpoints I do agree that there's certainly not a cable news channel that I think is doing a perfect job of having genuine, balanced, like one-to-one or good faith, never straw manned, the best example of the other side coming on. But I would say that there is, I, I can't come up with a single example in my head where I've seen like a CNN and MSNBC panel where I felt like there was a really strong conservative that was brought in to truly showcase their their viewpoints i don't know like i do think that fox puts more effort in i think i i mean i would like to see even more well i mean cnn you've got nicole it's either cnn or msnbc's nicole wallace you have rick santorum you know i think sometimes it's trumpy people and not right like Corey lewandowski was on cnn for a while but i'm not an expert on this i have my instincts obviously i'm way more skeptical of fox news than then you might be Ricky. I, I think our listeners, like, what are listeners, if you're listening to this, I imagine you have strong opinions about this. If you've got something to bring to bear, call or voicemail, because I definitely, we don't have nearly enough time to do this. So uh, 321-200-0570, if you want to bring some evidence to this, go for it. And obviously, if you want to talk about any of the stories we've done or suggest anything else, uh, we'd really love to hear from you. So that's 321-200-0570. Ricky, welcome back. Glad to have you. And we'll be back here on Thursday, uh, same time and place as we usually are. Uh, thank you very much. Go out there, rate, review, and subscribe to The Lost Debate. Give us that five-star rating. Talk about why you love this podcast. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks, research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra, studio support and video editing by Moyo Adeolu, editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Monica Espedia.